Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, February 22nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Scientists have tapped deeper into the depths of our dreams by achieving two-way communication with lucid dreamers. Why were there so many serial killers between 1970 and 2000, and what stopped them? And space is getting more diverse in more ways than one. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Scientists have breached a whole new level of the dream world. They've managed to communicate with people while they're dreaming. Not just the one-way communication you may have with someone who is sleep-talking, but two-way communication. The awake scientists would ask the sleeping subjects questions, and they were able to respond without waking up. These results were published last week in the journal Current Biology and already aired in a segment on PBS. And one thing giving this particular paper a lot of credence is that it's actually the work of four different teams from four different countries who initially conducted independent studies before finding out about each other and joining forces. In total, they brought together 36 volunteers across 57 experiments and trained people with varying amounts of success on lucid dreaming. That is, dreaming where you're aware of dreaming. It's a cool thing that some people train themselves to do either for fun or to help with various conditions. Some of the volunteers already had experience with lucid dreaming, but not all of them. Quoting Vice, The researchers verified that participants had entered REM sleep by placing electrodes next to their eyes, on their scalps, and on their chins. By measuring activities such as brain waves and eyeball movements, sleep experts can determine if a person has entered this deep sleep state. Some of the participants were then asked to confirm that they were in a dream with a prearranged ocular response in which they moved their eyes in a specific left-right pattern. These eye signals, along with facial contortions, were used as a means of communication during the sleep sessions. For instance, the researchers asked a 19-year-old American participant to subtract 6 from 8 while he was in a lucid dream, and he correctly signaled the answer 2, with two eye movements from left to right, and when asked again, he repeated the correct answer. Roughly 18% of the trials resulted in this level of clear and accurate communication from the dreamer, 17% produced indecipherable answers, 3% ended with incorrect responses, and 60% did not provoke a response at all, end quote. And from Gizmodo, quote, When the volunteers were asked about their experiences, some reported being able to remember the pre-dream instructions they had received and attempted to carry them out. Some also reported hearing the questions they got while in the dream, although not always in the same ways. And some reported hearing words that clearly felt like they were coming from outside their current reality, while others said it felt like they were hearing them through a radio or another form of communication within the dream. But there were still times when people couldn't clearly recall what had happened or when the questions they said they received in the dream didn't match the questions they had actually gotten, end quote. It's also worth noting it was a pretty small sample size, but one of the study's authors, Ken Poller, points out that the fact that those results came from multiple different methods employed by multiple teams around the world indicates it's not an isolated phenomenon. Calling this interactive dreaming, Pauler says they're working on expanding in a few ways. They want to be able to run the experiments in people's homes where subjects would be more comfortable and maybe use an existing smartphone app that teaches people how to lucid dream. 
Now, while the main aim of the research is simply understanding the mysteries of dreaming a bit more, there are also some potential practical applications, like helping people with breaking habits, problem-solving, or having therapeutic benefits. If you want to dive in deeper, I'll put a link to the PBS segment, which touches on a few other dream studies as well, in the show notes. Alright, so a heads up right at the start here that this segment is a bit dark. I'm going to try to keep it as not dark as possible, considering it's about serial killers, but it's not about any specific crime. Rather, the question of why there seem to be less serial killers now, and what it was about the years 1970 to 2000 that produced so many of them. Rolling Stone spoke to criminal justice expert Peter Vronsky, author of the new book American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years. Vronsky says that more than 80% of known American serial killers operated between 1970 and 1999. But why? And what happened to change that? Well, there's quite a lot of reasons that Vronsky and other experts point to, including reasons that make that number not exactly accurate. First is the fateful combination of traumatic upbringings and certain aggressive personality disorders. You can have experienced abuse as a child and turn out fine, of course, and you can have a personality disorder and also turn out totally fine, but some people who get a heaping dose of both turn into very violent adults. Vronsky points out that a lot of the major serial killers we know by name, like Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and John Wayne Gacy, were all born during wartime. Raised by fathers who were returning veterans, many of them with then-little-understood PTSD. By some accounts and guesses, they were raised in violent homes, building on their already hardwired violent tendencies. So that's one theory for why so many serial killers were on the prowl in the last few decades of the 20th century, but why did the trend peter off? Societal and technological changes are a big factor. As cases were publicized, people changed their behavior, especially women. No more hitchhiking or walking alone at night. And people in general began to think twice about picking up hitchhikers and other similar behavior. People started using home security systems. Of course, these changes just meant that serial killers shifted their focus to more vulnerable populations. Quoting Rolling Stone, In my jurisdiction, I saw the serial cases focused on sex workers starting in 1990, says retired detective Paul Holes, who worked on the Golden State Killer case. The predators shifted to sex workers out on the street, a ready pool of victims that would voluntarily get into the cars and generally wouldn't be looked for if they disappeared. Those cases are often not as well known as the murders committed by Bundy and the like, end quote. And that lack of publicity around certain types of victims also plays a large role in our perception of how many serial killers there actually are. The media tends not to report as much on victims of color. The victims that get the most attention in the media tend to be young, blonde women. Women are not just victims, however. There are more women serial killers than it seems, more than is reported depending on what language is used. Quoting again, women often go under the radar because they're more often psychopaths who use sociopaths to do their dirty work, much like Charles Manson used his followers to execute his crimes, than killers themselves. So there's an artificially low number of female serial killers, says neuroscientist James Fallon. But if you count in the ones that are just manipulating people to do their dirty work, then that number goes up to what it is for men. End quote. 
And that language on who qualifies as a serial killer and how the authorities keep track of them is another big factor in certain periods of time looking like they have an outsized amount of serial killers. Here's what Vronsky says, quoting Rolling Stone, We've always had serial killers, but we just don't have a record of them because there was no formal law enforcement agencies in the form of police as we know it, nor a printing press that distributed news or accounts of serial murder in the way there was by Jack the Ripper's time in 1888. He goes on to describe how during the Great Witch Hunt in Western Europe between the 15th century and the 18th century, serial killers were put on trial as werewolves. They were not furry beasts driven mad by the moon, but humans with a taste for stalking, assaulting, and killing their prey. Once the witch hunts ended, we have approximately a 150-year period where there are no serial killers reported, or werewolves, as the ecclesiastical enforcement system no longer existed, Vronsky adds. Serial killers were probably lynched by the local community as there existed no criminal police or criminal prosecutorial bureaucracy. End quote. But then in Victorian London, for example, you had both the police force and courts, as well as a hyperactive media, ready to spin tales and exaggerate tragedies. Some of this played out again a bit in the 70s, 80s, and 90s as tabloids and television started expanding in the amount of coverage they offered. People became obsessed with following various cases. So even if there were technically more serial killers in that period of time, it also seemed like there were even more because of how it was documented and projected. So maybe there are less serial killers now, which would be great, but I wonder if the types of atrocities being committed by people who may have been our textbook stereotype of a serial killer before are simply different now. And what is the current role of the media? A media that's overly accommodating to the glut of true crime podcasts and slick documentaries? How is that influencing our perception of things? I guess time will tell. Okay, well, after that supremely dark segment, let's end on a bit of a lighter note. 29-year-old Haley Arsenault is the latest person announced to be joining the October SpaceX Falcon 9 flight around Earth made up entirely of non-astronauts. This is the one you may have seen advertised during the Super Bowl, with the totally surreal commercial inviting you to enter a raffle sweepstakes to win a flight to space. I'm still not over the fact that this is a real thing that there are real commercials for. It's wild. 38-year-old billionaire Jared Isaacman is responsible for the sweepstakes. He bought the rocket launch, meaning that he can fill its seats with whomever he likes. But rather than just filling it with his billionaire buds, he decided to open it up to the public and raise money for cancer research at the same time. The sweepstakes, raising money specifically for St. Jude's Children's Hospital, runs through the end of the month, and while there are some tiered entries, one entry is free, 100 entries are $10, etc., it's capped at $1,000 or 10,000 entries so that a super wealthy person can't just buy their way in. So far, it's raised $9.5 million for St. Jude's, but Isaacman is adding other perks to the sweepstakes lineup in the hopes that he can get it up to $100 million raised for the children's hospital. Haley Arsenault, however, was not a sweepstakes winner. She's a physician assistant at St. Jude's and a former patient herself. 
Isaacman had wanted another seat on the rocket to go to a frontline healthcare worker, someone who, quote, symbolizes hope. And to that end, he couldn't have found someone better than Arsenault. Quoting the New York Times, Miss Arsenault walked into St. Jude for the first time in 2002. She was 10. Not long before, she had earned her black belt in Taekwondo, but she was complaining of pain in her leg. Her mother saw a bump protruding over the left knee. The pediatrician in the small town of St. Francisville, Louisiana, where they lived, not far from Baton Rouge, told them it looked like a cancerous tumor. At St. Jude, doctors provided the good news that the cancer had not spread to other parts of her body. Miss Arsenault went through chemotherapy, an operation to install prosthetic leg bones, and long sessions of physical therapy. Even at that young age, Miss Arsenault was helping at fundraisers for St. Jude. The next year, Louisiana Public Broadcasting honored her with one of its Young Heroes Awards. When I grow up, I want to be a nurse at St. Jude, she said in a video shown at the ceremony in 2003. She says now, I want to be a mentor to patients. When they come in, I'll say, I had that when I was little, and I'm doing good. End quote. Depending on who wins the sweepstakes, Arsenault should become the youngest American ever in space, as well as the first person with a prosthetic body part to go to space. And while the Times points out that this would disqualify her from NASA's strict medical standards for astronauts, there's additional news today that Europe's space agency is specifically looking to diversify their pool of astronauts with more women and disabled people. Calling it the Parastronaut Feasibility Project, the agency consulted with the International Paralympic Committee to determine which types of physical disabilities they would be able to accommodate at this first juncture. So far, quoting the New York Times, recruitment is open to people with leg amputations, with marked differences in leg length, or who are especially short, but the hope is to open the program further, end quote. Though as Italian astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti points out, having a disability shouldn't be as much of a limiting factor for living in space as it sometimes can be for other professional fields or living spaces. Cristoforetti said, quote, when it comes to space travel, everyone is disabled. The solution is just technology, end quote. And part of the reason for intentionally trying to diversify is to further study the effects of space on different types of human bodies, not just those of able-bodied men. The agency is specifically looking for people to train as astronauts, not just become space tourists, like the passengers on SpaceX's October orbit chartered by Isaacman. But if training as an astronaut isn't in the cards for you and you want to go into space, you can enter that St. Jude sweepstakes or the fourth seat on the rocket is going to the winner of another contest run by Isaacman's company, Shift 4. This one is described as a Shark Tank-like competition requiring people to design an online store for their business idea using Shift 4's software and then post a video describing it on Twitter. So far, both the contest and the sweepstakes for St. Jude seem to have a fairly low number of applicants, which isn't super surprising to me as someone who loves space but absolutely positively would never go into space, and I don't think I'm too alone in that feeling. But it does mean that if you do want to go, your odds right now are pretty good. So maybe I just wasn't online that much this weekend, but it felt like there was a lot of big, irreverent news today. For example, Ken Burns has changed his hairstyle for the first time in half a century. And more poignantly, Daft Punk have broken up. 
Jason posted their video announcement on Kotki.org today. It's well worth a watch before you dive back into their back catalog to remember all the good times. I know that's what I will be listening to all week. But that is it for today. I hope you all have a great start to your week, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.